Hello and welcome to the Match Day Northwest podcast. I'm your host Josh Dawson. And I'm Jack Goodwin. And we'll be your host today. This week we're joined by former Tranmere and Preston North End striker Ian Hume. We've had a short spell at Fleetwood Town. How are you Ian? Yeah, not too bad. Just getting on with things and obviously tough times for everybody but just got to make do with it, haven't we? Yeah, have you been keeping busy during lockdown? Just staying at home, following protocols, doing as I'm told, uh, social distancing, all that lack. Um, I'm just spending time with the family, to be honest, and it's been a, uh, it's been a good time. It's okay. It's tough, obviously, not being allowed to go out, and obviously for a lot of us, not having sport around in football in general. But just get on with it, don't we? Uh, Ian, moving on to your football career, you started your career off at Tramier Rovers, making the jump from the under-18s to the first team in the summer of 1999. Um, when you made your first appearance, what was it like coming on, knowing you were the club's youngest ever player at that point? Um, I didn't know that until afterwards. Um, it was I'd been involved maybe, uh, what, four months earlier? Um, and or five months earlier, and I think it was the the Worthington Cup. We we played Middlesbrough at home, and I was on the bench. I was only just sixteen then. Um, but by the end of the season, when I made my debut, I only got told afterwards that I was the youngest player. Um, but it was it was just surreal. It was I was I was still a baby to be honest. I was sixteen and a half year old, and obviously I'd only been over in the UK for. I think six months, eight months, um, and I wasn't expecting for a couple of years to make the the first team. So to to make my debut was was brilliant, far far ahead of schedule. So in terms of your international career, you represented Canada at the 1999 Concacaf Men's Under 17 Championship. After coming through the youth program at just 15 years of age, you first represented your country in 2001 playing for the under-20s. How did you find out about your first call-up? Um, well, at the time, when I when I first went up to the under-17s and the first under because I played for two under-20 teams, so I played in the 2001-2003 World Cups. Um, but I was in the system over there, so I was playing for my province over there, um, which you kind of have to do to break into the national team. Um and it was it was one of those I I got called up to the under 17s because I was one of the top players from my age group. Um, and playing in that under 17 tournament, we played in a tournament down in El Salvador, and that was my first international. And then obviously going under 20s was was just another step in the the right direction. But my first under 20s, I'd been in England for two years, so just a phone call, and it was a, a matter of well. Listen, you're doing so well over there, come and be a part of our squad. And it was brilliant. It was, uh, I got to play in the, well, in the two under 20 World Cups I got to play and I played against some of the, the best players the world had seen. Um, playing against Kaka and Adriano in the first one. And then coincidentally, we got uh, drawn against Brazil again in the second one I played in, in UAE and Danny Alves and he was there and, uh, what uh, Andres Iniesta played for Spain and like playing against these guys and you're looking up and you're thinking some of the best players the world's ever seen. Well, yeah, it certainly. Go on. It certainly sounds like you played against some uh, 
top internationals. Um, but you actually made your senior team debut for Libya. Um, was there a noticeable difference between the two, between playing for the under-20s and playing for the senior team? Um, it wasn't as big a gap as it it always felt like when you were younger because, like, obviously I was playing over in, in the UK and I was playing for Tramia for, for a couple of years by then and I'd, I'd been involved in, obviously, men's football properly uh, for a few years and making that jump up, it was, a, it was incredible. Um, but again, it was, we were in Libya, we were playing against Libya. It wasn't a, it wasn't like thrown into the deep end against a Mexico or USA or, or one of the big European nations or anything like that. So it wasn't a massive gap. Um, and being a first team, pretty much a first team regular or involved in first team games and squads every week, it was, it was kind of the norm because I was playing up against or at the same level as a lot of the guys who were in the national team at the time. So it's a lot different playing for Canada and getting a call up from uh, your under 20s or playing in Europe and then going to the, the men's national team in Canada. Whereas if you're doing that from the under 20s in England, you're getting called up to the English national team, there's a massive, massive gulf uh, in quality. But for Canada at the time, it was uh, there wasn't a massive amount of players over in Europe and around the world other than playing in Canada. So it wasn't a massive gap. And it was something that I was I was proud to do, but it was something I was hoping to do. And it came about a lot, a little bit earlier than I'd thought, but it, it came along. Well, you, in 2005, you scored your first senior goal against Luxembourg. What was it like scoring that? Um, again, it was another, like, it was, a, it was a smaller game. We weren't playing against a, a footballing giant, but... Uh, it was a great goal. It was uh, great to be involved in. And it was the middle of December or something like that, or January, and it was freezing cold in Luxembourg. And just to score my first goal for my country, it was, I'd, I'd scored numerous goals for the, the under-17s, under-20s and so on. But uh, obviously, to get your first goal for your country, is you, you look at that, you get your first cap and then you look at your first goal. And to do that was, uh, was something special. I'll tell you what, it was quite a good goal. Your goal against Spain in the quarterfinal of the 2003 FIFA World Youth Championships. Let's take a quick look at it. Do you want to talk us through it? It was just, uh, to be honest, it was it was a tough game because we're playing against a Spain team that was uh, one of the best in the world. But it was just a matter of we, we were playing them on the counter-attack <clears throat> because of the way we played and the way they played. Um, we were playing counter-attack and... We defended so well and obviously clear and some sitting there waiting to pick up scraps and uh, to pick the ball up there in the middle of the field and things just opened up and it was just a matter of hit it, aim for the target and thankfully it, it, it in the replay you see it and it took a nice little bounce for me and I've hit it pretty much on the full volley instead of half volley. Um, it pops up right at the end and it was it was just pretty much perfect the way it set up for me and Thankfully, it, it went in. It was, a, it was a great strike, but it's, it's one of those things. Is when I was a lot younger, I had that, that sort of confidence in me. And I was, I was, like I said, at the time, you got these, a lot of the players in our squad and that there playing uh, university football and youth team football around the world. Yet I was playing uh, pretty regularly for Tramir at the time. And um, again, free kick right after it. Uh, caught the keeper off guard and possibly could have scored this but uh, 
it was just one of those things as playing against players like in that team, I think over their careers, they've ended up going on and making thousands and thousands of appearances between them. Um, and in our Canadian team, we we had uh, a couple of players who went on to play pro and the rest of them went on to do other things in their lives. And we were definitely the underdogs there, but I think that was a game that we were desperately disappointed we didn't win. I mean, that was amazing to see there. Iniesta was who scored the Spain's goal and you've levelled the score against a team with Iniesta in, as you said earlier. That's just... Yeah, it's frightening. And like you, nobody knew who he was at the time, but after that tournament's when he broke through into the Barca team and then you look at it over your career and then you can see your name and the score sheet next to his, it's, it is something that you cherish and something that you look back on and think... Bloody hell! Like, what's going on here? Why have I played against him? But uh, no, it was a it was an incredible tournament and a team a team that the our country is massively proud of. And I think even to date, it's the the most successful any Canadian team's been in a world tournament. Uh, Ian, um, you what you you were eligible to play for Scotland. So was there a specific reason you went with Canada over Scotland? Um, well, I was born in Scotland, um, but I grew up in Canada. I moved over there when I was a year and a half old, and um, I stayed there until I was near 16. And I think everything I learned about football, although being from a, a British or Scottish nationality and the, the culture of football that we have, um, just playing for Canada just felt right. And when I was playing for Tramir, um, I got asked to go on trials for Canadian under or for Scottish under 16s and at the time I was already playing under 17 and, and under 20 Canada so it was it was just a not so much a step back because I never know how far I could have possibly got if I'd have gone to Scotland but it was it just felt everything felt right about playing for Canada and everything I'd learned in my youth so it was the right thing for me at the time and to this day it remains the right decision I made. We've got to ask about the incredible 6-4 victory for Preston over Leeds, where Preston were losing 4-1 at one point. How was it possible to turn the game around in such fashion? What was said in the dressing room at half-time? Yeah, it was a mad week, because um, I'd literally just joined the week before, and we played Carve away on the Saturday, and we got the result down there, and that was my first goal. I scored my first goal against them. And then it comes to this, this Leeds game and to be honest it was it was just frustrating because we were all over them at the start um, we could have gone 2-0 up and then uh, Parky scored obviously the first one and um, we could have gone 2-0 up and they must have had about five or six shots and scored four goals and it was it was just a mad night and they everything just happened to be going wrong for us at the time until half just before half time when Parky got to score the second and then in time, or in half time, Fergie just lost it. Just Fs and blinds and kind of his old man's uh, hair dryer treatment. And we deserved it, to be honest, because it was it was just a mad, a mad first half. It had everything. And, and then when it came to the second half, it was it was men against boys. And that was exactly how to say it. It was men against boys. We were, everything we did was perfect. And the second half, it was ended up six four, but it could have been a lot more. And uh, Parky gets his hat trick. Callum scores. Keith Tracy scores from a, a corner kick, and and then obviously I get the last one. But 
it was just a an incredible night of football, to be honest. And Ellen Road has the best atmosphere, or one of, if not the best atmospheres in the championship when it's on. When the team's doing well, the fans get behind them like mad. But at the end of the game, all you could hear was the Preston fans, which was which was an incredible feeling. You mentioned Darren Ferguson. Um, when he was eventually sacked as an off-end manager, uh, what was the mood around the place when he was sacked? And especially considering Manchester United seemed to recall all of their young players that were at loan at the club at the time. Yeah, it was a little bit petulant, wasn't it? The Fergie calling back all his players and then Tony Pulis following, following suit with Fergie and calling back the Stoke boys. and um, It was tough. The, the atmosphere, we knew it was coming in a way because obviously results... It's a result-orientated game. So if you're not winning games, if you're continually losing games, something's got to change, and you can't you can't sack a whole team of players. So unfortunately, the manager's head is normally on the on the on the chopping block, and it happened. But the thing is, it it happens a lot, and you you just have to get on with it. And we did that. We we see on on paper, you look at that that North End team, and it was it was mad. Uh, we had such a good team on paper. And we just couldn't make it click all the time. Um, and then he changed management and brought in Phil. And Phil steadied the ship a bit. And we started winning a couple of games. And we thought we were going to get out of it. Um, but again, it was the, the inconsistency that we had the whole season, which was inevitably our downfall, was we'd go and beat one of the top teams and then lose to one of the bottom teams. We'd go away from home and get a result against a good team. And then we'd come home and lose to to a lower team and it was it was frustrating that season because we we did give everything we we knew at times that it, it just wasn't good enough and again the lack of consistency ended up being our the our downfall the following season um when you went down do you think you could have bounced straight back up in what would have been 2012 if yourself and neil meller were fortunate enough not to get injuries around the same time in the season? Well, it was all three of us, wasn't it? It was me, Mel's and Prop all got injured within, what, two weeks? And they weren't just small injuries. Like, Prop had a double hernia and Mel's did his ankle. He, he tore ligaments in his ankle, so he was out for a month and a half. I ended up uh, tearing my MCL, so I was out for, for two and a half months. And it ended... It was. It was just madness, and we the only young strikers we had were Javel Sumu and like Jamie Douglas, and it was a it was a tough time for the club. Um, I wish, and I think most people uh, in the squad wish Phil had been backed a little bit more. Um, we we all know where that went uh, after after a couple couple more weeks or three four weeks of uh, struggling to win games with such a young inexperienced attacking line. Um, we ended up losing Phil, which was which was in my my eye in my eyes was a, a massive mistake by the club. But again, that's just me seeing what I what I see behind the scenes and everything. It was uh, I, I just wish he'd been given the, the backing because if he'd have been able to bring in a couple experienced players for those those two or three months where we weren't fit. You never know. We might have we might have pushed on because at the start of the season we were incredible. We were we were steamrolling teams, and um, who knows? Me, me, Mel's and Proc, we did everything we could. You can't stop injuries, um, unfortunately, and the types of injuries. 
Um, but then things changed and we we kind of sunk like a lead balloon for for about two and a half months. Uh, but it is football and unfortunately things went the way they did after that. So Phil Brown was sacked as manager just after playing Stevenage in a nil-nil draw um, in which Graham Wesley was the manager of Stevenage. Um, Wesley came in after Phil Brown. Um, there's lots of stories to tell about Graham Wesley. Um, if you ask any player or anyone that was involved with them, they, they, everyone's got a story to tell about Graham Wesley. Um, what, what did you make of Wesley and how he ran the team? Top man. <laughs> Is there a bit of sarcasm? Um, yeah, yeah, massive amount of sarcasm. I, I just didn't like the guy at all. Um, but that, that was set out from day one. Um, he came in and he didn't like anybody who who essentially had a career ahead or behind them. Um, and that was shown at the end of the season when Mel's was sent out or left and Barry Nicholson left and Graham Alexander left and uh, Clark Carlisle was gone and I was told I had to leave and it just was what it was. He just didn't like the confrontation of people who who were voices in there. Um, but the only thing I'll say to him is he's, he did well bringing in, recruiting a lot of people. Again, he got back massively in the summer. Um, brought in pretty much all the captains from around the league in Hunts, Welshy, Buchanan. <clears throat> made a made a strong side and they went on to <clears throat> eventually after he left and they, they had a bit of nose behind them they, they went on to do well You then moved to Doncaster on loan and you were part of the famous game against Brentford in which you earned promotion in such dramatic style is this one of if not the most exhilarating games you've ever been part of? It was actually a horrible game. <clears throat> like that was the mad thing. It was it was just uh for two teams who were fighting for promotion, we we just didn't want to go down there and lose. And Brentford obviously had a full house. We had a full full following from the away fans and um it was just mad. Uh it was it was such a cagey affair for, for ninety two minutes. And um neither team wanted to concede and it ended up just going down to the wire and obviously a dubious penalty given against us, but like I'd just gone off sub. So Billy Painter who came on was crouching by the benches at the halfway line, head in hand, shirt over his head. Um, and obviously it was, it was for us, it was brilliant because Brentford had a penalty taker. I think it's Kevin O'Connor right back or center mid he turned into. And he'd been taking penalties for years for them. And I don't think he'd missed one. It was kind of like a Graham Alexander for North End, where he'd always taken penalties and very seldom, if ever, missed. And he was on the field. Um, but Marcelo Trotter, who was on loan from Fulham, he wanted a bit of glory. So he grabbed the ball and sort of spat his dummy out. And it was, it was brilliant to watch after the fact, because you watch the video back and you see them arguing over the ball. And obviously... If that's O'Connor, you never know. Brentford go up, we go into the playoffs, and then we have to fight for for promotion. Um, but it was just a, ended up being a perfect weekend because we we get the the result. Obviously, we break. Coppinger scored. Ball dropped right to Billy Painter, who was like I said, crouched by the benches. If he's not there, that goes out of bounds. Throw in, we end up going up second or something, and Brent or Bournemouth win the league. Um, but uh, yeah. 
perfectly fitting, landed to paint, paint runs up, crosses it over, cops taps it in, right in front of the away fans, amazing atmosphere. But the thing that made it even better at the time was when we got on the bus after the game, you watch the all over social media and all over the TV on the, the bus and that, and Bournemouth had just drawn against Tranmere. Um, and our game obviously went uh, a little bit further than theirs in the in the stoppage time, but Bournemouth fans rushed the pitch asking for their trophy because they thought they'd won the league. And then Brentford, you see all the videos of like Bournemouth fans watching uh, the highlights from our game and Brentford have got a pen and they're going crazy. And the next thing you hear, you see a guy drop his phone or throw his phone to the floor because Brentford missed the pen and then we go up the field and score. You watch all that and it was just fitting. Quite a few people posted all over it. Uh, Twitter and everything was a good thing. You didn't bring the trophy up to Prenton Park. Get that trophy along the M62 and bring it to Donny for us, please. Like it was a, it was just a great, great way to end the season, especially the way it started for myself, because we all know about the whole players sent out to the, to the um, to the gym in Rossendale. We weren't allowed to be around North End players, and we weren't allowed to train and do preseason and everything like that. And then, like I, I spent the whole preseason in the gym doing gym work and no no ball work and refused going out on loan to other clubs and then on deadline day he allows me to go to Donny which was ended up being a blessing in disguise and get my first league league trophy, league medal, um, which was great after what eleven, twelve, thirteen years of playing professional. So yeah, uh, yeah, every cloud has a silver line and all that and you get treated like dirt the start of one season, you end up winning the trophy and rubbing it in somebody's face, which was brilliant. It, it certainly worked out well for you at Doncaster. Um, another side you went on loan to was Fleetwood Town in 2014, which worked out well, um, because even though you weren't there for very long, you were part of the team that uh, won uh, the League Two playoff final to get promoted to, to League One. What was it like being involved with uh, that team? Well, it was, it was mad because I'd kind of, I'd had my head, set on signing for Donny after we won the league um, I was told I could leave North End and I still had a year left of my contract and then for one reason or another it fell through um, they offered me a contract said come back from holiday sign it went on my holiday came back they stopped answering phone calls which was uh, which was very disheartening after after the year I'd had with them and the year the team had had um, so I was back at North End, did pre-season with North End. The first day of pre-season was uh, Simon Grayson saying, listen, we need you to go. Do pre-season with us, train with us, do everything with us. So the complete different end of the spectrum from Wesley was, listen, we we do need you to go for financial reasons, blah, blah, blah. But stay here, do pre-season. I did pre-season, did really well in pre-season, scored goals. We had a good front four of me, Garns, uh, Stuart Bevan, Kev Davis had just come in. So at the end of pre-season, Simon brought me in and said, listen, you're staying. So I'm like, okay, fine, not a problem. See the year out and we'll see what happens. And I was in and out the team and obviously his front two were Kev and uh, Bevs at the time. So me and Garns weren't playing. And then obviously Garns break. So I'm, I was essentially fourth string, which for me... I had the contract and I was enjoying my time as a good group of guys, but I wanted to be playing. Um, so I got to January transfer window and nothing happened. 
Um, obviously, I had I had a decent contract with Preston. Everyone had heard stories that I had a lot better contract than I was actually on, but I, I still had a decent contract. And it got to a got to a point where the loan window was about to close, and I just got a phone call from Greza. It got to a point where I was in and out. I think I only made about 13, 14 appearances, a couple starts, a couple sub appearances, and that. And I was like, listen, I'm 30, coming up 30. I'm, I need to be playing games. And it was going to be the first time in my career I was out of contract. So I couldn't afford not to be playing games. So I just went in and just said, if, if there's a possibility, I want to go out on loan. And when I said that, Greza calls my agent and says, listen, is Hume available? So it was kind of fitting that it all fell into place because I'd played with Greza the year before. Um, and it was just a matter of, yeah, you know what? We've got, what, nine games left in the season. Fleetwood were just inside the playoffs or just outside the playoffs. And it was a matter of, well, if you can bring in my experience, if I can help, if I can score a goal, 10 goals, whatever, any way I can help. Because Big John Parkham was there, Chris Brown was there. Um, we had... Uh, Bowley there, Mike, uh, David Ball, we had Sarsovich. We, we had a good little team there. Conor McLaughlin had just gone up there the season before. Um, so it was a matter of, you know what, yeah. Sorry, not Chris. I'd said Chris Brown before. But, but it wasn't, it was a no-brainer for me because it was in the area. It was 25 minutes past North End, so I was doing that drive anyways. And it ended up being, there was there was three other guys driving in from Merseyside, so there was two guys in Liverpool, another guy on the wheel with me. So we had a little car school, so I was only driving once a week. And um, it was just a good little group of lads, and it was a lot smaller club than North End at the time. Good little setup. The stadium was decent. Just made sense, and obviously playing for Greza because he knew me, and Ewell Maweni was there as the fitness coach. And these guys I all knew, and it was just it was just good. It was just a good place to be, and Thankfully, we, we ended up making the playoff final and got my first chance to play at Wembley. And um, thankfully, we got promoted. But those two years in a row of promotions, and it was the same same story as what it was with Donny. Said they wanted me to stay. Same thing happened. They ended up coming in, offering a, a lot less than what was actually told was going to be offered. So it was another situation where I was out of contract. You you sound like um, you you speak highly of Graham and you you, you seem to uh, like him as a person as a as a teammate as a manager. Obviously, <clears throat> Graham Alexander was chopped as manager. He was axed. He, he was he was no longer in charge. Uh, do do you think that was harsh on him that he he wasn't kept in in charge of the Cod Army? Yeah, the problem again. The problem, like, see, I I can't speak highly enough of Greza. Like, I I shared a dressing room with him. Okay, it was only for the season. Um, but knew him off the field as well, and like that was the, that was the frustrating thing was I'd sat down with him because he wanted he wanted me to stay, so I sat down with him. We met up at Tickle Trout, had a cup of tea for for about three hours. It was the longest cup of tea ever. Um, but we we talked through everything, and he's like he was Adam, and he wanted me to stay, and he goes, "I know what you're on. We can't offer the same, but I'll offer you as much as I can." And negotiations never went through because I went through his sport director who came in and he's the one who who said this is it take it or leave it so it was a matter of leave it and Greza after getting them promoted if you you sack somebody in a higher league after 10 games or whatever it's ridiculous and I've seen what happened to him at Scumthorpe as well and that that was a joke 
Like they missed out. What was it? They missed on the playoffs on goals. Like that was mental. And he gets the sack, and you're thinking, are you sure? And then you see the next season they finish just above relegation. So it was. Uh, Football's a very, very fickle game. It's the best sport in the world, but it is so fickle and it is so cutthroat behind the scenes. And you you hear about, and a lot of things from fans, there's no loyalty in players, there's no loyalty in this, there's no loyalty. The least loyal people in the world are football clubs. If it's not business perfect for them, then they won't, they'll, they'll do something else. And that, uh, it comes back so many times, and it's 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 kind of comical sometimes when you hear comments about players being uh, lacking loyalty. But on the other side of the 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 boardroom, it's uh, it's it's a lot worse. Trust me. Is that is that potentially a reason you've never gone into management yourself? I mean, you talked about Graham, uh, who, who realistically was sacked probably too soon at Fleetwood, definitely too soon at Scunthorpe. So now he had to go down to non-league to start again with Salford, even though they are a well-backed side. Um, but realistically, if he was given time at Fleetwood or Scunthorpe, he, he may have been in the, in the championship now. Uh, we, we don't know. Is that a reason you haven't gone into management yourself because of that? I'm only, I'm only 36. Give me time. <laughs> uh, no, hey, listen, I'm not, uh, I don't know enough about being a coach to be a manager yet. I'm I'm not gonna feed crap to you. Um, I've played the game for twenty professional for twenty years, but I've never coached. So I'm learning that. I've done my B license. I want to do my A license hopefully next summer. Um, and go from there. But you can't just walk into management. Greza was very very fortunate. He got to work with the reserve team when he just before he finished playing at North End. He was working with the reserve team and the the reserve players, and he was doing training sessions there. And, he was very fortunate. But the thing is, he was 40, what, 41 when he left North End. So he went into management at 41 years old. But he'd also played a 1,000 games and worked under X amount of managers and this and that. And he had such a wealth of experience and he, the type of pers- person he is, he could walk straight into it. But I don't want to be that guy who walks in and falls at the first hurdle, which you see many times. Um, so for me, learning my trade... Is like starting playing football again. I want to learn how to be a coach properly. I want to learn how to do sessions. I want to learn how to man manage people, and go from there. If I re- if I do come back to being in professional game, if it's through management, if it's through coaching, we'll see. But it's again, I'm just I'm just learning. I'm just starting out, so I wanna I wanna learn how to to be a coach before I I try to run as a manager. Coming back to what you said earlier about going out on loan. When you're out on loan, take Fleetwood, for example, do you ever find it hard to maybe maintain focus and commitment towards the club you're out on loan at? Obviously, Graham Alexander wanted to sign you, but knowing that you're going to return back to your parent club at the end of the season, at what point did you talk about staying at Fleetwood with Alexander? Well, for me, in that instance, I I never spoke to Greza until after the season. So I was a North End player until after the season, which but I signed there with the the plan to help the club get promoted. So as a lone player, whilst you're pulling on any shirt, if you have any sort of heart about you and any sort of love about the job you're doing, you're gonna give everything for the for the minute you step on the training pitch to the minute you leave the club. 
And unfortunately, you do see a lot of that where people come in on loan and they think it's a God-given right to play games and to, to walk all over teams. And you get players down from higher divisions and they think, oh, well, I'm too good for you. Well, you're not. There's a reason you're here. So that's the sort of thing that you see too many times in football. But for myself, going down to Fleetwood, it was a, it was a no-brainer. I was going there to play games. I was going there to keep, get match fit, keep match fit, and hopefully win a promotion. Did all of them. I was fit as a fiddle by the end of the season. We got promoted. <clears throat> I was utterly disappointed that I, I never stayed there or got another offer, but it was a matter of football, unfortunately. Like I said, it's a very fickle, fickle business, and that's the way it was. After a final spell at Tranmere Rovers, you then moved to Atletico di Kolkata in India in 2015. What was it like moving to the other side of the world after spending so long in England? Well, I'd moved, I'd moved there. I'd played there a season beforehand. So I played for another team and then I came back and finished the season uh, with Tranmere, which <clears throat> in hindsight, it was, it was the perfect move. Um, coming back to the team that started my career and, I thought I'd enjoy it. I didn't. Um, I got messed around a little bit by manager at the time, Mickey Adams, but like in the past, it's one of those things. It's uh, I came back, didn't play, ended up training with the kids, got treated like a bit of dirt for a while. and um, Yeah, I'd done well in India for the three-month, four-month season that they had, and it got got to a point where coming back here, being away from the family, first time I'd been away from the family properly. Um, so it was the right move was to go back to Tramway. I live up the road, could literally get there on a push bike without pedaling. It was, it was one of those things. So it was, it was just a perfect fit. Um, but ended up being the biggest mistake I think I'd made was coming back because it kind of took the luster out of how things were with the club before I left because I left on a massive high before I signed to Leicester City and um, after that, after him treating me the way he did and the club accepting the way he was treating me was was, was very, very disheartening because obviously I've, my wife and kids are from around here and I've been here for 20 years. So, yeah. But then I went back to went back to India for that medical to Calcutta and did very well. Um, two seasons there and did very well scored quite a few goals for them and we won the trophy the second year I was there and it was uh it was enjoyable times because we we were a partner with Atletico Madrid. Um we were one of their affiliates out there so we had the right preseason in Spain, we had the right coaching methods and Spanish coaching methods, which were brilliant and coincidentally they helped me get my two my two spells in Spain. So I played in India and then I went to Spain twice. What do you think the biggest difference between uh, football in India and football in England is? Or was the one? Oh, well, it, oh there's a massive difference. Like the infrastructure in England is 100 years old. Like you, you look back at your, your Prestons, your, your Leicester Cities, your Tramways, your, the clubs I've been at, and the clubs are, what, 70, 80 years old. 100-year-old FA or 120-year-old FA Cup and all that. Their infrastructure has been building for so many years. They've got to the level they are now, whereas India's infrastructure for the ISL has only been going six years. 
So I went there the first, very first year, six years ago. <clears throat> and again, they've, they've been building it for six years and it is getting better day by day and year by year, but it's still miles and miles behind. Like their grassroots football is just picking up and their, their coaching levels are just picking up. They used to have guys who go out with a bag of balls and say, here, go and play for an hour. Like that was their coaching. Um, now they're, they're a lot more structured and everything is building uh, really quickly, to be honest. They've, their national teams moved from 100 and, I think 150th or 60th in the world to they broke into the top 100 last year. They've dropped out since then, but they're still in around the 100. So they've, they've moved up 40, 50 spots in the world rankings. So they're, they're making massive strides, but it's still, in football in terms, they're still a baby. When you originally moved to Kerala Blasters, um, was there was there a worry that it wouldn't gain football wouldn't gain the interest that that it that it would obviously with cricket being such a the national sport over there? Um, in certain areas, it's still the still the problem is cricket is a national sport in your Delhi and Mumbai and your northern your kind of northern states. It's very much still the same in your central states, similar. Um, but the more south you go, and obviously you go around the, the border of or the, the, the shoreline of India through Kerala, Goa, and then you go up to, to Bengal, to West Bengal, and up to Calcutta and everything, they're football daft. So, like, they, they still have probably, this, I think it's the second most supported derby in the world with uh, Calcutta East Bengal, or Mohammedan East Bengal. So they get 100, 120,000 people to games. Like they, it is football mad, but for the most part, or for not the most part, for half, half of the league, it's still, it's still learning that football is as big a game as cricket. It's still, it's never ever going to meet the, the heights that it has in cricket, but in a lot of places, it's very, very well supported and they are footballed up. You then finished at FC Pune? Yeah. Um, when I went back to Kerala Blasters, I, I, I did really well towards the end of it and I ended up uh, rupturing my ACL. Um, so from February until <clears throat> the April or the, the May, I was hotel bound pretty much through my rehab and specialists and here, there and everywhere and had my operation. And uh, then I came back and Again, messed around a little bit, promised a contract. They took it back um, without telling the medical team or anybody else. It was just the, the higher-ups. So, FC Pune came in, did my rehab there with them, finished off my rehab with them, and uh, ended up I was back playing by – I was fit to play by start of October. Um, ended up playing start of November. So, yeah, it was a <clears throat> tough times there. We – Phil Brown came out. Uh, he was funny enough, my manager there. I, I had some words to say with the the management before they signed him, so I helped, kind of in a way, helped them get into the job. Um, and did well. Played every game when I was back fit. Um, I think I missed one game with, with a lack of match fitness. I think I played three games in in just over a week, and then had to. I just told them I had to sit out the next one. I was a bit, bit old in the, the legs for, for me to be playing four games in just over a week. So, um, yeah, finished off the season there. It wasn't a very successful season for us, but 
it was a big one for me coming back from my ACL. Ian, um, you've been, obviously you've been to India, you've been all over the country in England. Um, what, if, if I have to ask you, what, what has been your favourite spell in football though? What, what has been the most memorable and favourite for you? Um, I think the, the adventure of going to India was, was big for me. Um, I did well out there. I uh, have a very good relationship with the clubs I've played for and the fan bases I've played for. Um, but to be honest, the I think my most enjoyable, I, I loved it at North End for the first year and a bit. And then it became not the club, just with the way it was getting run by by Mr. Meadows. Um, I, I stopped enjoying it. But I think for me, the best, apart from my start off with, with Tranmere, where I was playing every week, I think Leicester City, I, I, I really enjoyed it there. Three years and did really well in three years and just uh, potentially shouldn't have moved. But it was it was something that was kind of out of my hands with the contractual problems that we had there. So, um, yeah, I really enjoyed three years at Leicester and the, the whole club setup was brilliant and the people, the guys, the players were brilliant. And the, the club was brilliant and... Yeah, I'd, I'd probably I'd probably look back at Leicester and and say I I enjoyed that probably the most. Just touching on Leicester City, when when you did when you were at Leicester City, did you expect in just a few years' time Leicester to go and become the Premier League champions? No chance. <laughs> it was no, it was you never expect that, especially and you ask any Leicester fan, they'd never they'd never if they told you they were expecting to win the Premier League anytime soon, they'd have been lying. Um, it's like you ask a North End fan now when we got relegated to League One you ask a North End fan do you think you'll win the Prem in 10 years <laughs> they'd, they'd laugh you out the room <laughs> no but it's the truth you, you would and if, if anyone had said that when we went down the same thing um, no but the, the, the club the best thing they did was they they didn't buy in 20 players they got relegated they they sold three of us. They brought in four, five players. And then the next year when they got promoted again, they walked League One. When they got promoted again, they had obviously players out of contract, but then they brought in four or five experienced players who were championship quality players. And then two years later, they end up making the playoffs. Year after that, they end up getting promoted to champion. So they did it all the right way. They, they realized what, possibly needed fixed and instead of getting rid of a load of players when getting relegated they kept the mainstay of their team and made them fight to win win promotion again Matty Fright and Stevie Howard ended up walking that league so it was it was done the right way by the right people um, obviously Mandarich ended up selling the club on to the, the, the Thai company and the the rest is history like that's that's an, it's an incredible story. It is a Cinderella story from, from the day they got relegated. Oh, sorry, I lied. The day we got relegated because I was in that bloody game as well. Um, <laughs> but the day, the, the day we got relegated until two years ago, it's, it's just an absolute Cinderella story. Before we finish off, obviously we've got the Premier League restarting, the Bundesliga's obviously already restarted, and the Championship as well. So by the time this goes out, we'll probably have a verdict from the EFL as to how the season's going to conclude for League 1 and 2. But at the moment, 
we have not. So, um, do you think that's the right decision? Um, provided it's done properly. If you look at the, the, the Bundesliga at the minute, as weird it is, as it is to watch, they're not leaving any stones unturned. Like even the benches, they've, they've separated the benches, so each seat on the bench is six feet apart. And it goes right down the sideline. Like, it's mad to see. Um, I don't understand what the EFL is doing regarding your promotions, relegations, and everything. Um, they can't do this points-per-game thing. They can't null and void it. So for me, I think the only way to do things is to restart the leagues. But again, as long as protocols are followed, and the problem they're having is protocols are changing every bloody week for the general public, for sport, for whatever. Everything's changing. So until our government decides what way they're going forward without changing certain rules for certain people, starting sport in this country is going to be a tough one. As a Liverpool fan, I hope they start it up tomorrow. <laughs> so, <clears throat> but uh, championship, they, they were going to null and void it or they were going to give promotion to Leeds in West Brom. But how's that fair? When you've got P&E who are, what, they're seventh at the minute or sixth? Six. You do that, then you never know. P&E, no, I hope they don't, but they could have dropped out the playoffs with, with nine games to go. And it's not fair to the teams below them. How do you say to them, oh, well, you're not in the playoffs because we're stopping the season now, the next four teams are playing the playoffs. Well, if you can do the playoffs and you can do the FA Cup and you can do this, like, that's another one that I don't understand. They've, they've cancelled League Two and League, or they're saying they're cancelling League One. <clears throat> How are they running the FA Cup? If a League Two team had been in the FA Cup, yet you've already cancelled their season, how is that, how is that right? So for me, the FA Cup, if you're going to continue the championship in the Premier League, okay. But the FA Cup should have been stopped. Because if you'd have had a team from the lower leagues in the, the quarterfinals or semifinals or whatever we're at now, how do you continue that? So it's just a mad one because they're, they're, doing, they're following the money, in fairness. They're, you've got all these broadcasting rights that they've got around the world. And don't get me wrong, as the next fan, I want the season to continue. As a football lover, I want the season to continue. But what's good for one is good for the other. And I think if they're going to be continuing to take in this, this broadcasting money, then why don't they filter that down through the leagues and allow those leagues to continue? Because it's not fair. You've got teams who, who are well and truly out of sight for relegation and they're, they're, they're ended up saving themselves, which is ridiculous. Or you've got teams who are fighting for promotion and might be a game outside of the playoffs with nine games to go and getting told they're not in the playoffs. So how I just don't understand how they're they're doing it and how they're coming up with these these ludicrous decisions about how to replay games and how to not replay games. I mean you look at Tramia, they look like they had a very good chance of getting out of the bottom three. Well exactly. They're I think they're what, three points behind AFC Wimbledon. They've still got to play AFC Wimbledon. And I think Wimbledon have lost four to five or five of seven or something like that. And Tramia has won three in a row. So form guide tells you Tramia gets out of that. And if you look at Tramia's last three, four years, Tramia have, I think they've only lost something like 
three or four games in the last two months of seasons in the last three years. So that's that's insane. That just shows you the form guide shows that they they should be pushing on to save themselves. But they're they're coming trying to come back and change the rules and go points per game, which then means Tramie is going to be relegated, which is ludicrous because they've got nine they've got twenty seven points to play for, and they've got a game in hand. So that's what I mean. <clears throat> rules are getting bent every which way, and the laws that were agreed upon by all clubs in all sectors of the leagues, Premier League and EFL, you can't change that because of this. You need to, everything needs to be agreed upon by everybody. And I, unfortunately, I don't think that's the way it's happening. I think it's your money leagues, your championship, and your Premier League are dictating the way the the boards are, are reading these rules out and changing them and a bit of tipex across the, the rule book and write in what they want. It certainly is, really. I mean, Fleet, Fleetwood are another example as well, because uh, Wickham, was it Jack? Did Wickham go from seventh to third? From eighth to third off the points per game uh, whole basis. So, Yeah, and you look at Fleetwood's squad and you wouldn't bet against them. Like, okay, they, they haven't been walking it, but they they've got the experience and the quality there that if it does come down to it, you'd fancy them against most teams. If a one on one, you'd fancy Fleetwood. If you looked at their their team on paper, you'd fancy Fleetwood to fight. Um, but again, they're they're tiptoeing around these rules and they're 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 dodging so many bullets with changing the rules. And it'll just be be interesting to see how it goes because they're. They're taking their time announcing things when they were so quick to announce that the Premier League's coming back and they're so quick to announce that the Championship's coming back. But with the rest of the EFL, I think it's, I think it's unfair. But again, time will tell and unfortunately money talks. It does. So that's all we've got time for this week. Thank you, Ian, for joining us. Thanks for having me, boys. Make sure to follow us on Twitter at matchday underscore media underscore to stay updated as next week we'll be joined by a former Blackpool midfielder. You can also find us on Facebook. I've been Josh Dawson. And I've been Jack Goodwin. Thanks for listening.